This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Thank you so much. Chag Sameach. Thank you, that would be great. Uh, obviously none of you understood that. Chag Sameach. You're supposed to say that back because we're on a holiday at the moment. Does anybody know what holiday it is? <laughs> there are no pigskins in heaven, I can assure you of that. So that is not the right holiday. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. Today is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23. The Feast of Tabernacles for seven days you shall rejoice. And on the eighth day, there's the closing festival. So there's an extra day there. And it's kind of interesting to look at. Thank you. I think I'll just put it on the table. That'll be nice. The feasts that are there in Leviticus 23 are helpful to understand what God's uh, telling us about seasons. And one of those things do um, intersect with the body of Messiah and particularly with the concept of the rapture. And sometimes we hear about the rapture and we're not quite sure. So the first thing I want to do is talk about what the church is because that will help us in terms of understanding what the rapture will be. Because if we don't know what the church is, just as we don't sometimes know what the feast are, it, we're really talking pie in the sky. And when we talk about the church, it is not the visible church that we can see because there are many churches out there. Now, some of them are heretical. Some of them are okay, but some of them are really good and solid. And so looking at all the churches, we know that it's not all the same. So we're trying to define that a little bit better. And so the, the, the true church is made up out of all believers in whatever denomination they are. And so they can be here, they can be across Melbourne, even Melbourne, even with that funny season that you have here. Although most were in that other season, I think. But it, it helps us understand what this is. What is this body? And so we want to make sure that we understand that it's made up out of believers only. Now I want to run through the eschatology, the end times first, uh, particularly as it relates to the church, because then we'll, we'll unpack what the church is a bit better. Now eschatology is just a fancy word for saying end times. Now you and I have an end time, and I nearly had that yesterday. <laughs> And each of us will meet the Lord at some stage, and that'll be our end time. And so as we grow older, we come closer to that. But so does the body of Messiah have an end time. And the first event that will happen at this point is what I call the rapture. Now, the rapture as a word is not in the Bible, but neither is God or Jesus. Because it wasn't written in, in English. It was written in another language. But the concept of the snatching up, that's what the word rapture means, is clearly there, and so we'll look at that. And that's the first thing that we'll, we'll look at. And so let me just run through the eschatology first so that you know where, where this fits. Church will be caught up, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17, and we'll look at that in a moment. And when we are caught up to be with the Lord, we will be judged at that point. And some of us will be rewarded, some of us will lose all our rewards. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. 
once we have been judged and purified, then we'll, we will be married to the Lord. Because he will seek a pure and spotless bride. And so the aim for us is to repent now so that we become for but we can come before him pure and spotless, Revelation nineteen, six to ten. Now the Lord is in heaven, and so we'll be caught up to heaven, but we are called sons of Adam. Now Adam in Hebrew, Adam, is from Adama, from the earth. We are not made for heaven, we're made for the earth. So eventually we will come back here. So we are temporarily in heaven, and that's where the Father's house is. We sang about that, the many mansions, uh, John 14, verse 2. And you, uh, Jesus went there to prepare that place. Once we are there with him, we will be forever with him. And that's the thing that John is trying to emphasize, and that's what Paul emphasizes in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We will be always with him, not always there. And many of the great hymns that we sing imply that we are always there. But that's not the case. At that point during the earth, uh, there will be great tribulation, and many people will die. Uh, the earth uh, will be renovated when the Lord comes back, initially with a great earthquake in Jerusalem, but also in other places. And many things will change. He comes back with his holy ones, with his saints. And so we will come back with him and reign on earth. Now we will reign during what is called the Millennial Kingdom. That's a terrible name. It's true that it will be a thousand years. The book of Revelation talks about that. But it's not about the thousand years. And that's what we're emphasizing when we say millennial. It's about the Messiah. It is his kingdom. That's much more important. And so that's Revelation 20, verse 6. But ultimately, we will be destined for the new Jerusalem, the new earth, in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. And so the aim is not to live there forever. We are only there for a short period of time. But we will come back to the earth. But who will be caught up? That's the main question, isn't it? The question is not when, and that's what Western Christians often ask. When will we be caught up? No man knows. So we don't want to go there. And so when you get a little brochure that says 16th of October, throw it away. <laughs> there was a book in 1988 saying 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. It was on special in 89. But he did bring out a second edition with 89 reasons why Jesus was coming back that year. And in 2000, a new thing came out saying Jesus is coming back that year. Well, the Bible clearly says, don't do that. So the question is not when, the question is who. And so the question is, who will go up and who do we meet? Now, if we know that we're going to meet the Lord, that's not an issue. And we've discussed that at another time. We looked at the concept of Jesus in the Old Testament, and we said he is both prophet, priest currently, and king. And so as king, we need to have full allegiance to him. But who will go up? And that's where Colossians comes in. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Because in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it talks about the headship of Christ. And it says this. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head. He tells us what to do, not the other way around. Unlike some churches, we tell the Lord what to do. We don't want to go there. So the first thing we need to acknowledge is that he is the head. Now, for the Old Testament saints, and there was a body in the Old Testament, uh, that body was called Israel, that was not the case at that time. They didn't know who the head was. Now, they knew he was coming, but he hadn't arrived. But for us, we now know who that is. The second thing I want to look at is who that is. And so what is the body? Now, in Ephesians, we are told, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, we're told the composition of the body. Now, I minister a lot in Jewish circles, and we often emphasize the Jewishness. Now, in many churches, they emphasize the Gentileness. But here in this passage, what does it call us? The one new man. Now, the one new man did not exist in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if Gentiles wanted to become sanctified, they had to become part of Israel. So when you look at people like Rahab and Ruth, uh, Uriah the Hittite, they joined the nation of Israel in their customs and their laws. But we're not called to do that. We are free from that. But we together, Jew and Gentile, become one in Messiah, and we have equal access before God. Verse 14, for he himself is our shalom, who has made both of us one, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that that he might create in himself one new man, making, uh, sorry, in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God into the one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostilities. Paul is trying to emphasize something really strongly. When you come back to the Old Testament and in the New Testament period and the Gospel period, we have the temple. Now, in the temple there were various courts, and the closer you came to the Holy of Holies, the more sanctified it became. It's a geography of holiness. So all the earth belongs to the Lord, but Israel was more holy. Jerusalem was more holy, the temple was more holy, the temple compound, and the building itself more holy. And as you came closer, more and more people were excluded. Now, inside the temple compound, there was a wall. Now, on the wall, there was a little plaque that said, Gentiles are prohibited from going further on pain of death. And so Paul had trouble with that in the book of Acts. What we now have is access because he broke that wall down. That means that you and I, whether we are Jews or Gentiles, have access to God. Now, earlier during the communion service, we uh, remembered that the veil was broken. And so that even we go beyond that barrier, that wall of hostility, we can come straight into the presence of God with boldness and with confidence. But he does so by breaking down, and then Paul explains what that wall of hostility was, the law. Now, is the law holy, righteous, perfect, and good? Yes. But can we keep it? No. Can we come on the basis of law-keeping? No. 
What we can do is come before God together on the basis of what he has done. That's why he emphasizes the cross. Through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. So the body is made up out of Jew and Gentile with one head. That is Christ and nobody else. In Ephesians 3, Paul continues, and I'm going to read this from the New American, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And it says this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. Now they, they emphasize the word fellow. You are partakers with the Jewish people. You don't become overtakers and you don't become undertakers. You don't take the Jewish people out because that's, that's wrong theology. But together, fellow heirs, fellow partakers. Why? Because that wall of hostility was broken down and that's the key. Okay, so Jew and Gentile come together. Well, that didn't happen in the Old Testament. But why did God want to bring in all these, some versions will say heathens, but I'll say Gentiles. (laughs) Why did God bring you all in? Well, that's found in the book of Acts chapter 15, in verse 14, where Simon Peter relates how God first visited the Gentiles so as to take out of them a people for his name. So you were called out from amongst the heathens, from amongst the Gentiles, to be what? A people for his name. And we know then from Ephesians 2, that is together then with the Jewish people. Now your role, that is further defined elsewhere, that's particularly in the book of Romans, that you are there to make Israel jealous. Because Israel was the original people of God, it is from them that we received salvation. So now we've got to bring that message back to them. And that's what we do in Celebrate Messiah. But I hope that's what you do. That you bring that message back to them. Because together we are grafted into that one tree, isn't it? There's not two trees. There's not a Jewish tree. There's not a Gentile tree. There's the one tree. Now, what are we? We are the branches. And if we don't have faith, we are cut off. So we need to stay within the, the tree. That's the, the tree f- that is promised to the Jewish people. So what is the tree? The roots are the promises. They're not the Jewish people. The roots aren't Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're the promises too. And in that you participate now. So the unconditional confidence that God made, they're now open to you. Now there are certain aspects that you, you cannot claim, because then you would be a thief. And so you cannot claim the land. The land belongs to God and he has given it to Israel as an everlasting inheritance. But they are just tenants within it. It's not their land either. It is God's land. So what we need to do together is stand with God and his purposes so that we together, Jew and Gentile, can declare his praises because we together now are the one new man. Now, how do we get into that one body then? How do we get into that one new man? How did you become a believer? Well, we all became believers according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized into the one spirit. 
you and I receive the one spirit. So God's spirit is upon all of us, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. And so all of us come together based on the freedom that we have in Christ now. And all are baptized into the one spirit, into the one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of the one spirit. And so the Holy Spirit works in Jews and Gentiles, and together we've become the one body. Not a Jewish body, not a Gentile body, but a new body, the one new man. That's the key. Do we have that in the Old Testament? Do we have Christ as the head? No. Do we have the one new man? Do we have the law of hostility still out there? So clearly this is different from the body of saints that we have in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the nation of Israel that was sanctified by God, set apart. That's really what it means. And so the word saint can apply to them as it can apply to us. Now, once the rapture has happened, will there be other saints? Sure. So the word saint is not something to look at to say that is the definitive guide, but the one new man is. We need to make sure that we understand the language. Sometimes we talk about the people of God. And again, that's an inclusive statement because the people of God can be Old Testament saints, can be New Testament saints, it can be future tribulation saints. We need to make sure that we understand who we are talking about and that will help us. So when did this body start? Well, Messiah in Matthew 16 verse 18, he says, I will build my church. So has it started at that point? No, it's still future tense. It will come. In Acts 1.5, he's then quoted, and again, it is that future tense that is being expressed. And so the best time to then look at is after Acts 2. But in Acts 11, we already see that the Spirit has fallen. Now, when does the Spirit fall? In Acts 2, isn't it? So that would be the place to put this, though it doesn't explicitly state it there. Acts 11, verse 15 to 16. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, that's the Gentiles, just as us, Acts 2, at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the us, them, started in Acts 2 when he fell upon the Jewish believers and continues throughout the book of Acts to fall upon the other believers, the Gentile believers. So in Acts 2, we see the body is starting and coming together as a body. So what is the body then? Well, they're the Jews and Gentiles who believe, who've been filled by the Spirit and acknowledge the headship of Christ. And that we cannot save ourselves. Now, there's a whole lot of other messages that could go with that. But can you see this summary here? Well, now that we know the who, let's look at what the rapture is then. Now, I've been practicing the rapture, but I have not been able to jump higher than this high. So <laughs> I'm going to think I'm going to wait for the Lord. In John 14... Verses 1 to 3, 
Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions or many rooms. Rooms is probably big, uh, a better translation. I come from Sydney. We have mansions on Sydney Harbour. He's not describing those kind of mansions. He's describing spaces, places for you and me. So rather than envision, you know, a, an eight-story mansion on a harbour somewhere, don't do that. We have space in heaven. Mm-hmm. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. While the passage doesn't deal explicitly with the rapture event, it does tell us what will happen and why it will happen. Because Jesus will go, and he did. He prepared a place for us, and so he wants us to come to him. Now, as I indicated earlier, that's a temporary relocation from earth to heaven. So that's, at that point, tribulation period, roughly, on earth. We will come back after that. It indicates to us that Messiah prepared that place so that we can be purified, sanctified, and be that bride to be with him. Well, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, because that's the main passage. Thessalonians 4, verses 13. And in this passage, it actually describes the only church that you're not allowed to join. Because in verse 13, it says, the ignorant brethren. And you are not allowed to join that church, depending on your translation. It might say uninformed brethren. So it's okay to join some brethren churches, but not that one. Now, Paul has been ministering all over the place, and he's been to Thessalonica, and he's ministered to them, and he left. And then other people came in, or other preachers came in, and started teaching things that were slightly different than what they thought Paul was saying. So they went back to Paul and said, Paul, was that what you were teaching? And they wrote Paul a letter. Now, we have no clue what they actually wrote. But based on what I'm going to be teaching here, I'm going to suggest that he, they ask something like, hey, Paul, um, some of the believers have died. Will they miss out on the rapture? Uh, what's happening here? How does that fit with them? And Paul then writes a part of that in this response. So verses 13 to 15. But we do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed brothers about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Clearly they understood the concept of the being caught up, the rapture. That they understood. But they didn't understand uh, those who have died, what happens to them. That's their main question. So the question is, what happens to them? 
Uh, Paul uses a technical term here, those who have fallen asleep. Now, did you sleep last night? Yeah, is that what Paul is referring to? No, not really. Uh, sleep sometimes is referred to as death. But these are put to death through Jesus. So if you die in the Lord, it is Jesus who puts you through death. And you will be in him. So that's quite significant and slightly different than for unbelievers. Now these are not soul sleeping. They're actually conscious. They are aware of where they are. And the Old Testament talks about that uh, in Deuteronomy 31.16 or 2 Samuel 7.12. There's a whole lot of places that it talks about those who sleep with their fathers. But here it is not just those who sleep with their fathers, but those that have been put to, three, to sleep by the Lord himself. And this is the believers. And so there is a temporary cessation of life, of physical activity for them, until their bodies is taken up by the Lord. And so church saints, believers, will be caught up. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command or a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trump of God. And the dead and Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord This is a military precision thing happening here. The Lord himself, that's Jesus, he will come. That's the key for us. The Lord himself will descend. Where does he come from? From heaven. What will he do? He will issue a military command. Now what's the command? It doesn't say, does it? A shout. But what is he shouting? We don't know. You see, Jesus is the commander of the armies of heaven. So, if I would make a guess, and that's all it is, I would say, come up here. That, that would be my guess, and that comes out of Revelation. I don't know. We, we're going to wait. What's the next thing that will happen? The voice of the archangel. Now, how many archangels are there? One. There's only one archangel. Uh, common angels, one archangel. Seraphim, it doesn't mention the arch-seraph, but most likely cherubim, the highest class, and it does mention the arch-cherub. So there are various classes, and this is just a common angel, but in this case the archangel, and that's Michael himself, he will repeat the command. Now, he's not the commander. He would only be a sergeant or whoever shouts the next level of command. With the trump of God, uh, Paul is here referring, and he'll do that again in Corinthians, referring to a specific trump. We often jump immediately when we read this and when we read the Corinthian passage into Revelation. We've got to remember, Revelation is not yet written. Revelation won't be written for at least 30 more years. So Paul cannot refer to that. He's not referring to the final trumps 
or to the other Trump that we have at the moment, they're irrelevant. He needs to look at his own background. What will happen at that point? The Presbyterians will run... Oh, no, wait. (laughs) I'm sorry. I used to be a part of that, okay. But the dead in Christ will rise first. Only those that are in Christ, that have been put to death by Christ. It's those that are believers. They will be, at that point, caught up. So that's the thing. It's the trump of God, which is the trumpet that will call Israel home. Now, I started... um, this message with that greeting, that Hebrew greeting, Chag Sameach, because it has to do with holidays. Now, if you think about holidays, is there something connecting that with a holiday? Yeah, we call it the Feast of Trumpets. And later on, Paul will refer to that again, more strongly even in 1 Corinthians 15. He again refers to that trumpet. And again, it's that Feast of Trumpets in terms of background. So, The key here, which was repeated out of uh, John 14, that promise that we will be with the Lord forevermore. That's the key for us. And so this is a comfort to them, and it should be a comfort for us. We can be assured because God himself will organize that. The Lord Jesus himself will do this. Well, let's go to that other passage, 1 Corinthians In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we could look at the whole section, but we're just going to limit ourselves for time from verse 50 onwards. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the Perishable, inherit, imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, I love Handel's Messiah, and I I love that he's put that in there, because it's a great thing to sing. But he uses the word mystery here, Paul. Now, when we think of mystery, we think of something that we cannot know. But that's not the way the New Testament uses the word mystery. When the New Testament uses the word mystery, it just reveals to us what wasn't known in the Old Testament. So this was something that they could not have known until it was revealed through Paul. And Paul gets a number of mysteries, and this is one of them. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that it's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He starts off with flesh and blood. 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to deviate a little bit here, you'll forgive me. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam is created, and he is created with creaturely holiness. He's never sinned. And so he's created as a perfect being. God is dressed, according to the book of Psalms, in garments of light. It's the word or. And so according to rabbinic teaching, Adam too had those garments of or, garments of light. When Adam fell, what happened? God had to kill an animal and dress him in garments. And then it changes one little letter in the Hebrew to garments of skin. And it's the same sound, or. But it's no longer garments of light, but garments of animal skins because of the sacrifice that had to be made. And so, too, when we will meet the Lord again, we will get that restored to us. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. And so we will receive his righteousness and his perfection upon us. And therefore, this which is not pure will receive that purity from him. Now, sin uh, entered uh, in with Adam and Eve, corruption, mortality, all of that came in. And particularly in Romans 5, verses 12 to 14, we can see that. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spreads to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning. Not Sorry, those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It was the type of the first one who was to come. In other words, we are all under condemnation. All of us, you and me, all of us are under condemnation. Therefore, what we need is an exchange back from those garments that we received to garments of glory, garments that we need from him. And so it is that putting off the sin nature to get that nature from God. Now, when we become believers, we have a new nature put upon us. Now, the old nature is still with us, the sin nature, but something new is given to us, God's spirit. And so we should be standing in the spirit rather than in the flesh. So how do we change? Well, we will all change in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Now, the word here that is used is, uh, for the moment, is an atom. And so it is like an, an atomic flash of a moment in a twinkling of an eye, the fastest measure of time. We will all be changed. I guess it will be the fastest change of garments we will ever do. <laughs> and, again, we have that reference to the trump. So what is the trump? Now, as I mentioned, it cannot be the trump from Revelation, because... That hasn't been written. Paul cannot know about that. But back in Leviticus 23, we do have the Feast of Trumpets. Now, they don't blow a silver trumpet. What they blow is a a ram's horn, or in this case, a kudu horn, a gazelle. And I, I will try it once, but it's unlikely that I'll get a nice sound out of it.
No, I'm not going to get it. And in the synagogue on one particular day called the Feast of Trumpets, we call it Rosh Hashanah, we blow this 100 times. And so within the one surface, it is blown over and over. And we have three different notes. But the final note is called the Tekiah Kodola, or the final trump, the great trump. And Paul could make reference to that, because Jewish people were already doing that in the synagogue. And that would make sense. So Paul is talking out of his own Jewish background and says, hey, this will be like the Feast of Trumpets. In other words, something will change. Turn with me just quickly to Leviticus 23. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there. But in Leviticus 23, we see a number of feasts, don't we? Now, the word feast is not really the right, it's better termed holy season. All of these have prophetic sanctioning from God. The first one is, the first feast is the Passover, verse 4. And the Passover symbolically is Christ our Passover. The next one, verse 6, is unleavened bread. Unleavened, leaven is a symbol of sin. Christ is the unleavened one. And so we can trust in him for that. We then have the next feast or holy seasons, the first fruits. What happens on the first fruits? Nobody knows? What? Yeah, but symbolically, what does it represent? So, Christ has crucified. He is the sinless one. This was fulfilled. We would call this Pentecost. Feast of weeks. And so, Christ has now been offered... There, sorry, this is the first fruit, sorry. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. I'm jumping ahead of my mind. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. In verse 15, we have Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as we call it in Judaism. And that's what happens in Acts 2. And so what we see is a sequence of things happening. We then come to the next one, and that's the... Feast of Trumpets, verse 23. So what is the next thing that will happen? Once the body has been made, Pentecost, Holy Spirit poured out upon Jew and Gentile, we've become the one body. It is the calling home of that one body back to himself. This is a sequential order. It is at that point that Israel will need to start repenting because they know that the end is near, Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which we are currently in, that's that last feast, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, that's the kingdom to come. This is a sequential prophetic significance. So what we see here is Paul is saying, now that we've become the one body, the next thing that will happen, whether we've died or not, we will be caught up with the Lord because of this trumpet that is happening. The trumpet will come and we will be raised with him. Now, what is sown in 
dishonor will be raised in honor. That's this whole thing. And so it is about the weakness that he's describing that we have. And we will be given something better. So it's the body that is corrupt. We will be raised incorruptible. Uh, We don't have a glorified body, but we will receive that. We don't have the power of the resurrection currently within us, but we will receive that. We'll receive a spiritual body, no longer flesh and blood. But at this point, we will come together in a new body, a heavenly body, being immortal. And then he describes to us that death is then swallowed up. Because at that point, death will no longer have any power over us. At the moment, it has some power over us. We don't have to fear it, because we know we're going to be put to death by the Lord. But the sting of death has lost its power. Uh, The power of the law had already been broken, but now the victory has come through the Lord Jesus. Now many people then say, I I still want to jump to Revelation because trumps are in it. True, but it's not yet written, so we don't know. But even if you do want to do that, and you want to be honest about it, in chapters 1 to 3, we do have the church mentioned. That's true. But it's not the tribulation passage. Uh, Tribulation passage starts really in chapter 6. And so from 6 to 18, we see the tribulation unfold. And it's only after the tribulation that the church comes back. Because the body is not destined for that. So in that sense, we are safe from that. Now, when will it happen? I don't know. Will it happen before the tribulation? I would argue yes. And this is one of those passages that I would use for that. There are other passages. um, I I don't think we want to go there, but we are not destined for the tribulation. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 to 10 would, for instance, be a passage um, because Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And the wrath would always be an indication of the great tribulation, as we call it. So that would be just one of the passages. We do know, though, that he comes as a thief in the night. So what is it that we need to do? Be ready. Be awake. We need to be wise and have extra oil. We need to have everything that we can do to be ready for him. Because this is our blessed hope. And Titus talks about that, or Paul talks about that to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The blessed hope that we have, which is the appearance of the glory of our great God and our Savior, the Messiah Jesus. Because he came to redeem us from all of our iniquities. And so that is our blessed hope. It's not a secret event. Some churches talk about the secret event. It's clearly in Scripture. And if we want to rejoice in what God will do within us, this is the passage to look at. These are the passages, and this is the event to look at, because then we will be changed. Not as we are, but as we truly will be. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.